So just to get our bearings, we are uh, on a fourth and final sermon in a small New Testament letter called Jude. So if you have a Bible, Jude is the second to last book in your Bible right before the final book, Revelation. The primary message in the book of Jude was for first century Christians to contend for the faith, stand strong, fight for the truth of Christianity. And particularly the reason why they were having to fight in this season or this time in history was because the church itself had internally uh, been attacked. So there was internal issues. There were false teachers, false leaders that were drawing people away from the true Christ and the true Christianity. And so much of this letter is written to those in the church to deal with what's going on in the church. Um, which makes this book always relevant. I mean, this, this, is a, this is one of those texts that's always relevant because the faith, once for all entrusted to the saints, Christianity, since the time of the New Testament, moving forward, is always experiencing external threats, internal threats, and recurring personal problems. Um, the history of the church, 2,000 years, uh, the external threats, uh, there's always a culture that does not make the truths of Jesus Christ uh, attractive. So even in some people's mind, there were heydays for Christendom. All that what had happened then usually was that Christianity had bowed the knee to culture rather than culture bowed the knee to Jesus. And so there's, there's always been external threats, whether it's culture or government, uh, the, the term the world that you see used on and on, on um, throughout the New Testament is the world is that which is not uh, submitted to the Lord God. And this is what we live in. We live in the world. So there's always these external threats. Again, 2,000 years of church history says there's always internal threats. In every local church, there's a threat. In every denomination, there's a threat. And then, you know, whether you're Protestant or Catholic, there's, there's a threat to leave the one true faith. It's... it's we always want to make Jesus in our own image. We want to make Jesus tamer. We want to make Jesus more manageable. But to keep him Lord of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, is always a hard place to stay. But also just thinking about uh, the nature of uh, contending for the gospel, is we, all have, we just all have our own personal problems. And so sometimes we kind of lose sight of advancing the kingdom of God, advancing the gospel locally and globally because I have the flu this week. Or my kid is struggling. Or my friend just betrayed me on Facebook. And pretty soon, just dealing with our own personal junk, our, our addictions, our crises, our fears, uh, the, the, the contending for the gospel is so lost, we're just trying to stay vertical and get nourishment. Well, what, what we have in these final two verses in Jude, verses 24 and 25, are both motivation to continue to contend, perspective, and I think more importantly, help. The help to help us endure, to help us to keep contending. These last two verses are a doxology. Uh, a doxology is either a, a, a poem or a song that is fiercely God-centered in proclaiming his character. And so Jude, for most of this letter, has been addressing human recipients. He's been talking to them and encouraging them to contend for the faith. 
Uh, the last two sermons on how to contend for the faith. One, we're going to detect dangerous influences. Last week, to talk about how do you contend for the faith, you prepare for a long journey. You expect trouble. You keep yourselves in God's love, and you wait for the mercy to be revealed. But before Jude ends this letter, he wants to ensure that his audience is focused on the God above. Jude doesn't want the people to put Jude doesn't want people to put their trust in his own instructions. He certainly doesn't want them to put their trust in him, and he definitely doesn't want the people to trust in themselves. And so what he says at the very end, I'm going to read it to you, verses 24 and 25. Jude says this, To him who is able to keep you from falling or from stumbling, and to present you before his glorious presence without fault, And with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Pray with me just for a moment. Father, would you enable me to teach this faithfully so that you receive the glory and honor that's due your name and that the people are rightly built up and focused on the worthy God that you are. In Jesus' name, amen. So my proposition, my hope by the end of this sermon is that you would have a settled trust in God as your only hope for life and death. A settled trust in God is our only hope in life and death. There's two major principles going on, one in verse 24, one in verse 25. The first one is that God is able, and I think verse 25 is God is God. God is able, Jude says, to him who is able to keep you. Well, before we talk about God's ability, we need to talk about our inability. If this is going to be good news that God gets much glory, first I need to realize why this is so good, that God is able. And the good news is, is, the reason why it's good news that God is able is because we are not, so we need someone who can or who is. So let's just talk about how, how, um, how unable are humans. A couple of texts. First is in John 6.63. This comes from the lips of Jesus. In John 6.63, uh, John 6 is the, the scene of the feeding of thousands of people and then this call for people to trust Jesus so much so that they would eat his flesh and drink his blood. And then he gets into verse 63 and Jesus says in John 6.63, The spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. This is saying humans have no spiritual vitality. We are uh, spiritually depleted. What we do counts for nothing. What the spirit does is life. Spiritual, rich, vibrant life. Uh, John 6 is not about life from physical bread. It's life from God. It's life from Messiah Jesus. And so when Jesus gets to the end of his little discourse, he wants us to know, humans, in and of ourselves, we have no spiritual vitality. If there's any hope, if there's any hope, it's in this Jesus who is the bread who has come down from heaven. It's the only thing that can nourish us at, at the soul level. But we don't, even, we don't just lack Spiritual vitality, we also lack physical vitality. 
um, some of the terms in Scripture uh, about how spiritually, or excuse me, how physically vital we are. One is in James 4, you're a mist that appears for a little while and then is no more. That's our physical vitality. We're, we're a spritz for a second and then gone. Psalm 103, it refers to us as dust. But Isaiah 40, verse 15, doesn't just say we're individually as dust. It says the collective whole of humanity is dust. Isaiah 40, verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. So we lack spiritual vitality. We lack, we lack physical vitality. All these bodies come to an end. And guess what? We didn't start these bodies going either. So we didn't create physical vitality. We can't sustain our physical vitality. And then another major human inability is that we lack moral integrity. We don't have moral rectitude. We aren't right in the eyes of God. And so in Romans 3, verses 19 through 20, after Paul has um, used a number of metaphors from the Old Testament to talk about how corrupt the human condition is and how far we are from holiness, he says in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. These verses say a lot of things about uh, our lack of moral integrity uh, bottom line is we're guilty and condemned under the law, and it says we're silenced, which means we don't have an excuse. Before we can marvel at God's ability, we have to just recognize and admit our inability. We don't have spiritual vitality. We don't have physical vitality. We are morally compromised and guilty because of it, and we can't say, but, but it's his fault or it's her fault, or the devil made me do it. I'm guilty, you're guilty under the law. I thought there was a really faithful summary of the human condition that was actually in the introduction to Martin Luther's uh, The Bondage of the Will. This is written by J.I. Packer and O.R. Johnston. This was written in 1957. This is how they summarized the human condition. They write, he, being sinful humanity, has now no power to please God. He is unable to do anything but continue in sin. His salvation, therefore, must be holy of divine grace, for he himself can contribute nothing to it. And any formulation that would say it's possible for man to save himself is to be rejected as a lie. That's our inability. But then we come to verse 24 in Jude, and it says, but God is able. God is able. God is able in this life to keep you from stumbling, and God is able in death to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. Let's talk about God's ability in life. 
I'm talking about Sunday afternoon, Monday morning. God is able to keep you from stumbling and falling. That term stumbling and falling, it's talking about all those things we do most days. The white lies, the addictions, the eating more than we want, the, the snide remarks to people we love, the, the underhanded things we do at work. God is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling. Some of the rich promises about this are in the Psalms, where it talks a lot about God's power to sustain us. One is in Psalm 94, verses 17 through 19. Psalm 94, 17 through 19. The psalmist tells us, Unless the Lord had given me help, I would have soon dwelt in the silence of death. When I said my foot is slipping, your unfailing love, Lord, supported me. When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. If you go back a couple of pages in Psalm 56, verses 10 through 13, it says, In God, whose word I praise, in the Lord, whose word I praise, in God I trust and am not afraid, what can man do to me? I am under vows to you, my God. I will present my thank offerings to you. Verse 13, for you have delivered me from death and my feet from stumbling that I might walk before God in the light of life. God is able to keep you from stumbling. Admittedly, I think with really good intentions, I remember some instructions maybe in junior high and high school that that went something like this. The Bible each day will keep Satan away. Or I remember you know, being, you know, hearing a message. If you're, in a, if you're not in an accountability group, you will not be able to stand up as a Christian. And I just want you to know, ideas like this are subtly dangerous. Because they make Christians think it is in their, their own power to protect themselves. Now, those things might help you see the enabling power of God. And they might help you see the sovereign power of God. It might teach you of the great gifts that God has given us through the local church. But it is God who is able to keep you from stumbling. This is why when you stumble in your sin, it's not your accountability group's fault. And it's not God's fault. It's your fault. Your sin. You own it. God is able to keep you from stumbling. And Jude doesn't want us to trust in any human efforts to keep us safe. He wants us to trust God, to have a settled trust in God as our only hope for this life. But there's more. He wants to also to trust, us, trust God in death. Going back to Jude, it says, what, what is God able to do? Secondly, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. The psalmist, uh, David, wrote in Psalm 115, who may dwell in your sacred tent, that's who may come into your temple, who may live on your holy mountain, and he wrote, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart. Remember, these are impossible requirements. Those are the only people who get to go to the tent. Those are the only people who get to go into God's presence. But no person is like this. 
No one is spotless. And this is why Jews' description of God's ability to present us before himself without spot is so shocking. God is able to take the spoiled rags of our sin and wash them whiter than any bleach could ever wash them and to present you before himself totally spotless, not in cowering shame, it says, great joy. Great joy. Every now and again, I'll hear people preach these sermons that make you like really scared to die because you'll stand before the judgment seat of God. Jude says, if you trusted in Jesus, it's joy. Great joy. Not little joy, great joy. Shame is a horrific feeling. There's a couple of just (laughs) memories, uh, indelible memories in my brain, in my soul, when I stood before my own earthly father with shame. Something I had done, embarrassing, sinful. Like I could just feel the joy in life just being sapped in those moments. They're gone. Now that's only a fraction of the shame we would face before God if we didn't trust him to present us before him without spalt, without wrinkle, and with great joy. My wife and I lived in Littleton, Colorado for three years, which is Denver, And there was something wonderful about waking up in the morning and looking west, which I'm not sure what it is in this building. Someone help me. West? Yeah. But you look west, and there is just something so comforting about the foothills. They're there. They are settled. They are rock. And they're beautiful. And they're they're absolutely beautiful. Glorious, And so there was this little peace in my soul because the mountains were there. Moving back to Iowa was, was hard because I don't have those western mountains. I want you to imagine how a citizen of Denver would feel if he woke up one day and those foothills were just blown to bits. The Rockies were gone. Maybe an enemy had decimated them with some sort of weapon or some, some sort of, you know, gargantuan sinkhole took them all down at once. Hearts would ache and lives would feel undone. Years ago, Jonathan Edwards wrote, The happiness of God consists in enjoying and rejoicing in himself, and so does also the creature's happiness, that is, in enjoying and rejoicing in God. So Edward's point was then that our greatest happiness does not come in trusting the glory and the majesty of the Rockies or of sex or of power or of popularity. Our happiness and joy comes from God. And when we turn to these other things, we're going to feel guilty of dishonoring God and we're going to be certain of eternal disappointment. But what Jude is saying is God is able to bring you to himself without spot and with total unhindered joy forever and ever and ever and ever. It can't be snatched away. And so he's worthy of praise. Remember, this is a doxology. This is a to him who is able to keep you from stumbling or falling, and to present you before his glorious presence with great joy. To him 
be glory. And so the call for us is to trust God, have this settled trust in God in both life and death. But Jude has more to just revel in regarding God, and that's found in verse 25, where I'm just saying God is God, or the, the godness of God is on display. Verse 25, he goes on and says, To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. So Jude begins this section by using uh, four very rich words to develop the godness of God. Glory, majesty, power, and authority. Uh, What do I mean by the godness of God? What I mean is that something is not really God if it doesn't have all the necessary characteristics and qualifications to be God. Sometimes if you, if, you, if you get into like a philosophy class, you know, and they're like, what is God? Well, God is the greatest of all possible beings. As such, there can be only one God. There can only be one supreme being. Similarly so, God would have to precede creation. Otherwise, creation would be greater than God, for God, God would have come from the creation. But if God precedes creation, therefore, then all creation owes their allegiance to God. And so Jude is just throwing these words together to, to raise up the godness of God. It's like a Mother's Day card that says, Mom, you're the greatest, smartest, most amazing, loving, patient, amazingest, superest, greatest mom in the world. Could have used more words, but the words given there were like, you are mom. Well, Jude is saying, this is God. And who is this God? Well, First of all, this God has glory. This God is glory. Some definitions. Glory refers to the display of one's excellencies. That's what glory is, the display of excellency. The excellency of a master cellist is the music they can make with their instrument and their bow. The glory is the sound that reverberates through the music hall. The excellency of LeBron James, and if you watched last night's game, was crazy. But it includes his jump shot, his power to get to the basket, and his ability to be a floor general to bring about the victory, even as the last second ticks. Now, when you read in the scriptures about God being holy, I think holiness has to do with God's intrinsic qualities, his character, his love. That's who he is in his person, separate and distinct from creation. But God's glory is his external qualities on display that cannot be hidden. This is why when the angelic host is worshiping God in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then it says, and the whole earth, the whole earth displays his glory. This holy God of who he is, it just, his character, his excellencies are on display. God is God because he is glorious. Second, God is God because of his majesty. Majesty is awesome transcendence. Majesty refers to something so vast and beautiful that our faculties cannot take in its brilliance. This is, this is the Grand Canyon is majestic. Niagara Falls, majestic. The Swiss Alps, majestic. Looking across the Pacific Ocean, majestic. 
the majesty of God is displayed in the wonders of creation and in redemption. At creation, land comes to life, plants burst out of the soil, animals breathe their first breath, and humans open their eyes upon a complete and beautiful garden. Creation reveals God's majesty. But so does redemption, the history of God saving his people. So in redemption, God shows his wonder in a worldwide flood, 10 plagues to deliver his people from Egypt, and the destruction of enemies so his people can dwell in the promised land. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 3 through 4, Moses is reflecting on the majesty of God. And he says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness, the majesty of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just is he. God is God because of his glory. God is God because of his majesty. And now Jude says, God is God because of his power. Uh, Power, this word kratos, uh, refers to sovereign might. Sovereign might. Uh, This Greek word is only used in reference to God in the New Testament. God alone has ultimate power. That means he is the storm behind the storms. He is the mountain behind the mountains. He's the king behind the kings. God alone has power, which is why God alone is God. Mark 10, 27, with God, all things are possible. That's the sovereign might of God. God is God because of his glory. God is God because of his majesty. God is God because of his power. And this fourth idea, God is God because of his authority. What authority is, it's the intrinsic ability to act. It's license and authority to bring about one's desired purposes. And God has complete and utter authority. Psalm 115.3 was read earlier. God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. So God has absolute freedom. We have limited freedom. God has complete power. We have finite power. God ensures that what he desires does happen. Nothing happens without his permission. Even something as chance or luck is under God's governance. That's why Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot Or the dice is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, from time to time, someone will come in and they'll want to deny some of God's power or some of God's authority or some of God's majesty or some of God's glory. But as soon as someone has done this, what they've done is created a false God. That isn't God. God has these qualities. That's what makes him God. Anything less than this, not God. Something small and trite and tame. And this desire to remove God's goodness is so prevalent that writers like David Wells have warned that this is happening inside churches who claim to hold firmly to the Bible. In one of his works, he writes this. He says, It is this God, majestic and holy in his being, this God whose love knows no bounds because his holiness knows no limits, who has disappeared 
from the modern evangelical world. We want a God who is this wild and free and powerful because this is the only God who then is, who is able to sustain us in life and death. So God forbid that it would happen to us that we would shrink any of God's goodness or his glory or his majesty or his power. But notice that we're only partly through verse 25. There's more of the godness of God on display. There's five beautiful little words in the middle. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason God can and God does keep us in life and death is because of the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Right? All of these amazing qualities of God should cause us to cower in fear, but it's through Jesus that we can run to him in love because of what he has done for us. God is Savior to us because Jesus came. This is why when the Apostle Paul meditates on this, he writes in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ is the mediator uh, he's the one who takes all of God's godness and brings it to us so that we can enjoy it and revel in it. He's the, he's the pipe. He's the conduit. He brings God to us. The hope of eternity, is it says God is in all of us. And so there's the future. You can't even get your mind around it, but God will be all in all, which means all the fullness of God will experience all of creation, all of humanity, and some amazing revel of his glory forever and ever and ever. That's the end game, and it sounds really good. But it's because Jesus came. Jesus is his first name, but it comes from his, the, the Hebrew root, Yeshua, Joshua, which means God saves. When it calls Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, it's a title. He is Messiah. He's the anointed one. It's, he's king. And when it uses the term Lord, he's the sovereign. He is over us. Jesus of Nazareth is the person who has made our hope and salvation possible. The great God is for us because the great son died for us. The great God is for us because the great son died for us. One of the most beautiful verses in Come Thou Fount reads this way. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God, he, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Our hope in life and death has been procured through the death and blood of another. We were sought by God through Jesus. We were rescued by God through Jesus. And we were purchased for God by Jesus, through Jesus. And this is why you have these last few words at the end of verse 25. Therefore, we want to remember and trust this God because he is before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Before time itself began, before creation sprung, before a single star sparkled, God was a perfect, holy being of Trinitarian love. And now as we speak, this same glorious God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, are radiating their glory to the ends of the earth, the ends of the cosmos. This is on display for the, the angels and the saints for all to see and enjoy. 
And it's going to continue forever. It won't be stopped. This is a train that doesn't stop. It keeps chugging and chugging and chugging through history and time and space. His glory forever and ever. Amen. So where does this leave us? What implications does this have for us? God is able and God is God, so what? A couple of thoughts before we go today. First, beware of trusting in your own abilities. Beware of trusting in your own abilities. As stated earlier, you're not good enough, strong enough, or spiritual enough for anything you are facing right now. I think sometimes we think, well, I pray when things get tough. But if things aren't bad, why pray? (laughs) The Bible would say you're not good enough, strong enough, or spiritual enough for anything you are facing right now. You're not able to be a good friend. You are not able to raise godly kids. You are not able to, you are not able to stay away from porn. You are not able to, you're not able to stay sober. You are not able to figure out your future. You are not able, but God is. He can sustain your salvation and keep you from falling. He can sustain your patience and keep you from falling. He can sustain your sobriety and keep you from falling. He can sustain your marriage and keep you from falling. He can sustain your purity and keep you from falling. He can sustain your courage and keep you from falling. Just meditate in your own heart for a second. What what about your life has been the cause for much stumbling? And then take this to the Lord in prayer and say, Oh, Lord, help me to stand. Oh, Lord, help me to stand. Help me to press on. Friends, let's beware of trusting in our own abilities, but keep a a settled trust in God. Similar to not trusting our own abilities, let me warn us as we go to let anything, let's not let anything other than God be God. Beware of letting a good thing become a God thing. Many of us say we trust God, but in reality, we trust money. It is humorous that American money says in God we trust, but for most Americans, we trust more in wealth than God. When you're, so here's the thing. When, you're, when your stocks dip or you lose your job or unemployment goes longer or when your mutual funds sag, do you have a settled trust in God? Is it settled? Is your, peace, is, your, is your peace based on your pocketbook or on the Prince of Peace? Now, how about, us, how about us as a church? Do we really think that the amount of money that comes in today for our fundraising campaign is going to make us or break us as a congregation? Do we trust in dollars or in this doxology, the God of this doxology? If we're not trusting in money, it's often people. Do we have a settled trust in God when we lose the people we love? Does death or estrangement with a human person steal away your security? Have you built your life on the rock that is Jesus? What do you fear most? The death of a child or the death of your relationship with God? And if God took your child like he did Job, would you still stand and shout, blessed be your name, blessed be your name. Can you sing with Martin Luther, 
let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The, the body they may kill, but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. I pray that the saving blood of Jesus Christ would just soften our heart to his goodness and his godness, that we'd revel in his glory, his majesty, power, and authority. Third and finally, so we're not going to trust in ourselves. <laughs> we're not going to trust in others. We're not going to trust in money. So this is my invitation. Trust God by treasuring God. Trust God by treasuring God. I believe this is the solution to avoid trusting other things. The reason why we quit trusting God is we forget to treasure him, value him, honor him. Say like Jude says, to him be glory, to him be honor. I appreciate what John Wesley preached in 1788. And just a snippet from that sermon, he says this. But God, though you cannot see him, is above the sky and is a deal brighter than the sun. It is he that makes the grass green and the flowers grow that makes the trees green and the fruit come upon them. Think what he can do. He can do whatever he pleases. He can strike me or you dead in a moment. But he loves you. He loves to do you good. He loves to make you happy. Should you not then love him? This is the treasuring of God. Love him back. Love him back. He loves you. God was pleased to send his son. Isaiah 53, it says it was the son's pleasure. It satisfied him to die on the cross for you. We're now invited to love God back. Now, I assume many of you are familiar uh, with the father-son racing team called Team Hoyt. You guys ever read about Team Hoyt or watched a video about him? This running team began in 1977 when the son, whose name was Rick, was 14, born with cerebral palsy, turned to his 36-year-old dad who had never run a race in his life and said, Dad, I want you to run in a 5K to raise money for a college student who had been recently paralyzed. And Rick, because of cerebral palsy, has hardly been able to walk at all, has spent most of his life in a chair. And so he, out of compassion, says, let's go run for this college man who was recently paralyzed. That began a 40-year running career with Dick and Rick Hoyt. It only ended recently because Dick is in his mid-70s. But at retirement, Team Hoyt had completed in 1,130 endurance events, including 72 marathons and seven Ironman triathlons. What I love about this story is that both father and son, they shared in the victory every time they crossed the finish line. One of Rick's recurring statements about running with his dad is that whenever his dad is pushing him, it feels like he is free of his disability. This is what it means to contend for the faith. God does all the pushing. God does all the running. And yet we share in the victory with him. He lets us share in this. We get to share in his glory. 
Earlier, Matt Rossman read this wonderful verse that says, I will not share my glory with another. But for some reason, at some point, he's like, I actually am going to share this with my sons and daughters. They're going to share the glory of my son, Jesus. So my invitation to us is be Rick. Trust God to push. Why don't you stand and I want to say these last two verses and then we'll close in song as well. So worship team, you can come up if you'd like. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And brothers and sisters, let's give him the amen. Amen.